You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, Good evening, church. Uh, My name, if you have not been here and not familiar, uh, is Stephen Wallacek, and I am one of the elders here at Revolution Church, and I am also the worship pastor. Um, I have been given the task of preaching on the doctrine of sola fide, which is the justification by faith alone. Post tenebras lux. This means after darkness, light. And this is a phrase coined after the Reformation by Luther and the other reformers. As I say, before the Reformation, uh, there was a darkness or an eclipse of the gospel through Rome. Um, The doctrine of justification by faith had become diluted and they were beginning to add works alongside of faith. The scriptures were not available to everyone who were there. It was left for those who were preaching. So everyone in Rome was dependent on what they were being taught um, by the leaders. That would be the same thing as you guys coming here each week. There being no Bibles in the pews for you. You just come in on good faith assuming that David or me or whoever is preaching is telling you the truth. And that's what they were going through. And uh, Luther... uh, studied Galatians. He loved Galatians, um, and that was a book that corrected his view of justification along with Romans. Um, And being as he was so heavily influenced by uh, Galatians, um, and that it was the one that I would argue pushed him to um, nail the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg, um, I thought it would be appropriate that we take a look at Galatians ourselves and see what is that God says about justification. Um, To give a bit quick background, Uh, Galatians was written by Paul, and soon after he left um, and the spreading of the gospel through Galatia, Judaizers were coming in and they were teaching that alongside of faith, you must do something for your salvation, for your justification, Uh, circumcision, dietary laws. So they were diluting the gospel and they were eclipsing it and teaching that you must add something to faith. And so Paul and Martin Luther, both at different times and in different places, were working essentially for the same goal, and that was clarity and keeping the gospel pure. Um, in Galatians, Judaizers were destroying or, or, or diminishing the view of the gospel by saying faith plus works could justify. In the same way, Rome also taught and continues to teach that faith plus works can justify. Uh, to be clear, a lot of Protestants like to throw out a straw man and say that Roman Catholicism teaches that it's works alone, and that's not true. They believe that faith is essential, but it is not sufficient. We must add something to that. Um, so in the same way we don't like people throwing strawmen against us, um, let's be honest and find what they actually believe and test it against the scriptures. Uh, so follow me here real quick. I'm just going to give a very brief, or try to be brief, um, view of uh, justification uh, through um, what Roman Catholics teach. Uh, again, justification, uh, to define it, um, is where the sinner is declared as righteous or just before a holy God. So it starts with baptism, which is the initial or instrumental cause of justification, uh, where the believer is infused with grace or righteousness. And this covers all of the sins up to the point of baptism. So everything done until you're baptized is covered. And sure enough, 
as we know, um, after we profess faith and after they be baptized, um, the believer will fall into sin. And there's two kinds of sin. You have venial sin, which are less, lesser sins, and mortal sin, which are more serious. Uh, venial sin uh, gives you impurity, and for that, when you die, you will go to purgatory, where you are purged of any uncleanliness until you, um, for an unknown amount of time, until you can stand before God. Because consistently, an unholy person cannot be in the presence of a, hun- of a holy God without suffering the wrath. And mortal sin, which would be like murder, adultery, uh, things like that, actually kills the grace received at baptism. And so after the grace is killed, the question is asked, how is a person justified once again after they've made a shipwreck of their soul? The answer is not to get baptized once again, but their answer comes in the sacrament of penance, which is three, there are three steps in it. There is confession, with a contrite heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do this. It's good for us to confess our sins. James 5.16 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we do this together corporately each week. We confess our sins with one another. The second step is priestly absolution, and absolution being uh, you're released from guilt or punishment of the sin. And that's not really that bad either because, again, we do the same thing. It's good to be assured of our pardon after we have sinned, to know that God uh, has, has taken our sins. Uh, and I give an assurance of pardon after we corporately confess. First uh, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To be clear, I do not pardon you. God has done that through Christ crucified, and they believe the same thing in the sense that the priest does not pardon you. He's just announcing it over you. So the first two things we don't really have a huge issue with, but the third is the works of satisfaction, which is something that the repentant must do in addition to confessing, repenting, and believing in order to be made right with God. And this is where we'd have the issue. This would be uh, saying of Hail Mary, they are fathers. So, so praying, giving alms, uh, any other kind of good work uh, like teaching. Um, and in doing this, the believer receives condign merit. And this is not merit that God is obligated to give us, but it's merit that it's just fitting that God would do that for us and give that to us because of what the person has done. So there are, there are more facets to it. I'm not really going to get much deeper. I think that should suffice for our view of how, justific- how they view justification um, to occur. So, um, and, go- and continuing on, we're going to read Galatians 3, 10 through 14. If you go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you don't have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen. And what we're gonna, what's kind of going on here is Paul will tell us there are two ways we can be justified, faith or works. And he's going to set the two against each other and then show how really there is only one way that we can be justified. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed to be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful men that you have given us that fought to preserve your word and fought for the doctrines that are important, that define our faith. And I ask that, Lord, as we read through Galatians, that you'd open our eyes once again and remind us of how our justification is to take place by faith alone and is not in our work. We are not trusting man, but we trust in you. Lord, work through the folly of my words. And we ask that you be glorified. We ask all of this through Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to kind of uh, preach uh, the, the uh, text kind of out of order. So you guys don't get confused. I'm not going to start at 10 and work all the way to 14. I'm going to kind of start in the middle at verse 12 and work backwards um, in hopes that it will make to tie them together so it will be a little bit more clear. And then I'm going to go to 13 and 14 to kind of finish out the end of it. So just so you know where I'm going, you don't get thrown off by me going to these random verses. Uh, so first I'm going to start with verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. What Paul is doing here is he's setting the law and faith apart. They are not the same, they are not of the same essence, and they cannot be mixed together. Why are they different? Why is the law and faith different? Well, one is showing trust in ourselves to uphold the law, and the other to tr is to trust in God. Living by the law for our justification ultimately shows us something about ourselves. It shows we have a high view of ourselves. And what you're doing when you try to obey the law for justification is putting your faith in your performance. You're making it all about yourself. How can I get to God? When you're living by faith in God and not by the law, you're putting your faith in God. You cannot have both faith in yourself and in God simultaneously, and this is why Paul sets these two apart in verse 12, to show they are in fact very different things. They cannot be intertwined. This is why we would say that Rome is in serious doctrinal error, because ultimately they're showing that it's up to man to cooperate with God in order to be justified. Um, and as you're, as you're trying to uphold the law for your righteousness, what you're really doing is you're diminishing how high of a standard God has set. You're diminishing His holiness. You're saying that you can reach that standard. An uh, example of that would be if our brother Dave Allison over here, if he came up to you and said, uh, I was playing basketball the other day and I, I dunked it. What would you think? I would think that that net was probably five foot tall, six foot tall, because he's not reaching it, right? You're not. I'm sorry, Dave, but I don't care. You're not going to reach that ever. Some people just can't do stuff, all right? <laughs> and so... That's an obviously imperfect example, and comparing ourselves with an infinitely holy God, but it is an example that we can make, that it's impossible to reach that standard. God is infinitely 
perfect in every way, and we are fallen sinners. So the two are set at odds with each other, the law and works of not of the same essence. We go to verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So if Paul tells us which one it cannot be, he says it cannot be the law. Why can't we be justified by the law? Well, Paul gives us the two reasons. The first one being that God says the righteous shall live by faith, or by faith the righteous shall live or have eternal life. This comes from Habakkuk 2.4. And what's going on there is the Babylonians are showing their swords to Judah, and they're on the horizon, they're closing in. And Habakkuk, the author of the book, is concerned for the well-being of his people. And God is telling him he's going to bring judgment on Judah for their disobedience. They are not living lives to glorify God. And so he's raising up the Babylonians to pour his wrath upon them. And Habakkuk is crying, why, God, are you using these wicked people to pour out your judgment? For they are far more wicked than us here in Judah. And the Lord's response, he, he, he contrasts the two types of people. He, he says there are the Babylonians who are puffed up in pride and self-righteous, and it is not right with them, but the righteous shall live by faith. Meaning, in God's judgment, we have two options. You can trust yourself, be puffed up in pride as the Babylonians or the unfaithful in Judah, or you can trust God's promise and live by faith and be preserved in the same way that God promised a remnant throughout the destruction of Judah. There'd be a remnant of faithful that'd be carried on. So we have two ways to live. You can live by faith, like faithful Judah, or live by your own righteousness and what you've done, like those of Babylon and unfaithful Judah. So we have the first reason why works will not save you is because God has just told us right there. He, in Habakkuk 2.4, he says, The righteous shall live by faith and not by works. And the second answer that we have is found in verse 10, the first verse we read. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So God has said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And this is taken from Deuteronomy 26, 27. So if we are told that, that we are cursed if we do not abide by all things written in the book of the law, we must ask ourselves a very important question. We must ask ourselves, what is the law? And if we know what the law demands, then we can know if we have broken it. And if we have broken it, we know for sure that we stand cursed. So what does God mean when he says the book of the law? He's referring to the whole Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. Uh, where this is taken from in chapter 26 of Deuteronomy is right after chapter after chapter after chapter of God's demands and law for his people. And in doing so, he's, he's referencing and quoting the rest of the Torah. He gives laws for marriage. He gives laws for war when to go to war, how to act in war. 
He gives practices that should be abstained from, how they should eat with dietary laws, cleanliness laws, laws concerning kings and how to appoint them, provisions that should be made for prophets. He gives law after law after law, and it amounts to 613 laws that ought to be kept perfectly. And God says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And that is not something that we ought to take comfort in. This right here would have been a blow to the Judaizers that Paul was writing to. They understood the law and all that it entailed, yet if they were honest with themselves, they knew that they had failed. And at some point in time, so who could actually wholeheartedly believe that they have obeyed the law in its entirety? We can say the same thing about ourselves where we cannot even keep the Ten Commandments. And in fact, Jesus tells us the whole law can be summed up quite clearly in Matthew 22, 37. Jesus says, the Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. Can you say that you spend every second of every day doing this? With every breath, you are focusing all of your attention upon glorifying God. Every second of every day, when you wake up in the morning, your first thought is, thanks God for another life, another breath. And you go to work thinking, how can I glorify God today with my time? How can I glorify God with how I treat my employer and listen to his instruction? How can I glorify God when I get home from work after a long day and spend time with my family? Or do we often get tired and irritable and think, I've done my work for the day? And the second greatest commandment that Jesus tells us is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And do we even do this, the second greatest commandment? Can we even hold to that? That you seek that others are fed as you are? We think of ourselves more than anyone else. So the whole law can be summed up in those two commands. And let's not get this confused with earthly laws. When we evangelize, one of the questions we ask is, how do you think you get into heaven? Or do you think you're a good person? The answer is usually not in light of what God has commanded, but the answer is usually in light of what the government has commanded. The usual response is, well, I don't steal, I've not killed anyone, I pay my taxes. So they don't just appeal to what they have abstained from, but they also appeal to what they actually have done for the government. Even if it's not a law, there are still things that societies think are better than others. Uh, so they will appeal to, well, I work a good job and I don't mooch off the government. I work hard, I've not cheated on my wife, I don't beat anyone, I've not killed anyone. So overall, I think that, I think God would look pretty, pretty fairly upon me when I die. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of me and Dave, we used to play music together um, in a band years ago, and there was a band we played with a few times, um, great guys, phenomenal musicians, great songwriters, but there's a lyric that, that came to mind, and, and it says, if there's a God... I hope that he'll see all the things that I've done and make room for me. 
Just think about that. If there's a God, I hope that he'll see all the things that I've done and make room for me. And that's generally what the public thinks about. Is hopefully he's seen the good stuff I've done and that can make up for it. But brothers and sisters, that is the last thing on earth that we should desire. Because not only has God seen what you've done, but he's seen everything you've done. Not just the external, but the internal. He sees what's going on in your heart. And when we look to our external obedience, we're missing the whole point of the law. We're abusing the law. Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not murder I say to you, you shall not hate your brother, and if you do, you've murdered in your heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus ups the ante. He doesn't make it easier. He's made it quite difficult for us to say that we've obeyed the law. Whenever we do something that we think is good. Let's say you feed someone. Why did you do it? Did you do it on the side of the road so that people, hopefully someone you saw would see you and think, what a nice thing that person has done feeding that person in need. But really, in your heart, you, you want a glory. You weren't doing it for their benefit. You did it for your glory. God sees that. Even when it looks good, it's actually very, very evil. When you held your tongue against your coworker you got in an argument with, did you hold your tongue out of love and seek reconciliation with him? Or did you hold your tongue for self-preservation so that way those would look upon you as if you were a better person? Because externally it looked like you held the law, but internally it was still a very, very wicked demeanor that you had. And God sees all of that. And again, when we do this, we miss the point of the law. When we uphold the law for our unrighteousness, we abuse the law. We are not doing what it was designed for. And in seeing the law, and seeing that we have broken the law, and after verse 10 tells us that because we have broken the law, we are cursed, what is the point of the law if it couldn't save? Why, do we, why did he give us the law if it cannot be of any benefit to us eternally? He gave it to us to show our sin, to expose our wickedness. Romans 3.20 says, for, the, by, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Paul also says in Romans 7, 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what it is to sin. So it was designed to show sin, show sin. When we use the law for our own righteousness, we abuse it, and even in obeying the letter of the law, we're still sinning. Galatians 3, 17, 18, further on from where we had read, says the law was given 430 years after the promise given to Abraham that we would be saved through faith, through a coming Messiah. So does the law given after a promise to save us through Messiah, 
Does that nullify the original promise? Absolutely not. The promise stands that we will be saved through a coming Messiah. The law was given to show us our need of that coming Messiah. I don't want us to think that the law was bad. It's not bad, it's very good. And when we obey the law, we reflect God's character and it honors him. But whenever we rely on the law, whenever we rely, meaning we have confidence in the law, confidence, confide, sola fide, which is faith, con being with, with faith. We are having faith in ourselves to uphold the law. And so ultimately we're looking to ourselves to save. We're not looking to God. We have faith in ourselves. In doing this, we are saying we have the power through our good works to bring ourselves up to God's level. In our hearts, we're saying we are God. We are our own Christ. We can conquer sin. We can conquer death. And we can conquer the grave. You're saying you don't need Christ when you look to yourself. And we look to verse 10. That proves that all, all are cursed under the law because all have failed it. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's like if you went to the, see the Mona Lisa and you had a knife and you kind of took it up to the eye and just cut that little piece out. What have you done to that? You've destroyed it. It's absolutely worthless. So it is with the law. You break one point. You've condemned yourself. You've cursed yourself. One sin is worthy of the wrath of God. It's also can be compared to, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, uh, old little game, Don't Break the Ice. It was like a little square piece with these little white blocks inside. You had a little hammer. You tried to chip them out. And if the whole thing shattered, you lost. Well, that would be like chipping away at one piece and the whole thing crumbling. That is what we have done, even if we were to break one of God's commands. But I think it stands from knowing God's law that we break much more than just one command. So to recap, Paul gives us the two ways to be justified, faith and works. One, Works doesn't work because first God said so. And if you live by works, you're showing that you're puffed up like the Babylonians. And two, even if God had not said that, well, we've already done it. We've already broken the law. It doesn't matter. That's of no benefit to us. So what do we do knowing that works can't save and that we've already broken the law? Well, the answer can be found in verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Some would have found this despicable that Paul would say that the Son of God became a curse. How could a holy God become a curse? The King of kings, worthy of all praise, suddenly became worthy of wrath. Church, this is our hope. We don't find this despicable. 
This is where our salvation comes from. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, a curse on a tree, suffering the wrath of God. Christ was not a curse for himself. No, not for himself, but he was a curse for us. On the cross, Christ no longer a perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God, but cursed, carrying all of the sin upon him of all those who would believe more sins than I could mention or think of. On the cross, Jesus Christ was burdened with the sins of David, an adulterer and a murderer. He was burdened with the sins of Paul, a blasphemer, He's burdened with the sins of Peter, a liar. Burdened with the sins of Matthew, a greedy tax collector. Burdened with the sins of the woman at the well and Rahab, who were prostitutes. He burdened the sins of John Newton prior to his conversion, aided in the slave trade, viewing people as trade for goods. He was burning with the sins of Rosaria Butterfield for her homosexual activity among us to get local church. He bore the sin of your pornography use. He was burdened with the sins of your sexual immorality, whether that be homosexual activity or sexuality or sexual activity outside of marriage. He was burdened with the sins of your failed parenting. He was burdened with the sins of your unbiblical divorces. He was burdened with the sins of your wrath towards your fellow co-workers. He's burdened with the sins of your anxiety, not trusting that God has put you where he wants you. He's burdened with the sins of you not loving your spouse perfectly. He was burdened with the sins of your atheism. You're denying his existence. He's burdened with the sins of your idols, looking to other gods and looking to other religions. And lastly, he was burdened with the sin of you looking to the law for your right standing with him. He was burdened for your legalisms. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The sins of every single believer in this room and all throughout the entire world and all throughout history that would trust in him were placed upon Christ, the God-man who did not know what it was to sin, who had never been in sin for all eternity past who deserved blessing suddenly at the hands of wicked people had wickedness thrown upon him in an instant and suffered for us so that we could be cursed no more but blessed and blessed by faith. This is what we read in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It reads, we receive the promised spirit through faith by trusting in God. 
not by trusting in our own works and righteousness to make us right with God, but believing in God's promise to justify us through the works of another, through Jesus Christ. The blessing that is offered to us, the blessing of salvation extended to the Gentiles through faith, the same way those in the Old Testament were saved through faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Didn't say his works were counted to him, but his belief. Now, his belief surely would show actions, but works are not the instrumental cause of his justification. It was his faith, and so it is for us. Paul says that we received the blessing of Abraham in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, and in him we are blessed, and the Messiah and Christ coming. We are blessed in the sense that we are justified by faith and not of our own work. That's how Paul tells us that we're to receive the work of Christ. That's how we're made right with God. It is through faith. Faith alone, he doesn't mention anything else, just faith. Faith is the alone instrument by which we receive Christ and his work done on our behalf. Nothing that we do is mentioned here. Baptism isn't mentioned. Circumcision isn't mentioned. Being a good moral person is not mentioned. Leading a small group is not mentioned. Teaching children downstairs is not mentioned. Coming to church on a weekly basis is not mentioned. Though those are good things, that is not how we are justified. We trust in Christ and the work of Christ alone. The law was never meant to save. It was only to show us our sin and point us to the one who could save us. So to summarize it, what have we seen in Galatians 3? We saw that Paul gives two ways to be justified, faith and works. Paul shows us that we can't be saved by works because, one, God tells us that we were never meant to be saved by works. And he says the righteous shall live by faith. On top of that, if we could be saved by the law, we've already broken it. So now it's impossible to be saved by works because upon breaking the law, we've taken a curse. Why can't the law save? Or why the law if it can't save? To show sin. And in showing our sin, we run to Jesus Christ, the one who became a curse for us. So that way we may be blessed through faith. As Abraham was blessed and counted righteous by faith, so are we. Justification has to come through faith alone. Because we've run the other option. There is no other way. So quick questions as I wrap this up. How do we deny this doctrine on a day-to-day basis? This is kind of a very open-ended question. I, I really want all of us to pray and think about it throughout the coming week. How, how do we deny this doctrine? I think it can take place in many, many different ways. The most obvious is do you trust in your own righteousness? If you do something good, if you, let's say you read the Bible well that day, you pray, you help someone in need, how, and you feel pretty good about yourself, do you feel good about yourself because of what you've done that surely God accepts me because I've done this right? When you haven't done it right, do you feel devastated? 
Not to say that you don't despair or not, that you don't mourn your sin. But when you realize you sin, do you despair and question your standing before God because of what you've done? Do you think, surely I can't be a Christian if I've done this because Christians don't act this way? Well, really, how, how do Christians act? Because if you're going to put a list of good works down that a Christian does, you're saying the identifying mark of a Christian is his work. And the identifying mark of a Christian is his faith. I may be stepping on toes here. Not saying that we don't do works and a Christian shouldn't do certain things. But I think that we temper that enough. The identifying factor or mark of a Christian is not his work. It is his faith. And in his faith, by God's grace, they will bear fruit in their Christian walk. We will surely stumble. All of us will surely stumble in seeking to glorify God. But as Christians, we have faith in God to save. We have faith in God to save us through his judgment. We will not be puffed up like the Babylonians and unfaithful Judah. We don't trust in the law. We are so prone to go back to Rome. We are so prone to go back to what the Galatians were falling into because we have such a hard time trusting others. We, we trust ourselves more than anyone else. I think we can admit that. Lastly, do, do you trust the mourning of your sin? Do you trust your sorrow over sin to save you? Because let me tell you, sorrow over your sin cannot save you. Crying tears over your sin is not enough to appease a holy God. It must be Christ. It must be Christ that saves us. Brothers and sisters, trust God. He made his promise to save by faith. In his kindness, he gave us the law so we could know that we're lawbreakers and know we need a Savior and turn to Christ. Some quick application. I don't have very much for this. But preach this to yourself every day. Remember this. Empty your hands and hold on to the cross. You cannot have your hands full of things and hold on to the cross. As we sing in Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know and could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And also, believers, if you question your right standing before God, look to Christ. Paul says we have received righteousness by faith. Your righteousness is in Christ. It's not in you. And Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and in sitting, he's showing that his work is finished. There is nothing more to do. It's done. And he's holding your righteousness at the right hand of God right now. Trust in God and don't look to yourself for your salvation. That is the only way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth that you have revealed to us through your word. 
that we are not saved by any human effort or any human strivings. For that is impossible. We could never live up to the standard of your holy law. But Lord, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to suffer the wrath that we deserve, wicked sinners. Unable to perfectly live life for your glory at all times. And we're thankful that we have received this, not by some, again, human effort or exertion, but we have received it by faith. Father, we lack faith. Strengthen our faith. Help us to trust in you. To trust that through your judgment, that the righteous, that we shall live by faith and in faith have eternal life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to work that in our lives. That you'd fight off any legalisms that we are prone to. And that we live day to day glorifying your holy name. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.